All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you here from uh, Queens in New York City, the 27th day of March, 2018. I do want to remind you that I'm the author of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Its major focus is on gold mining uh, shares, especially exploration companies, companies that actually find the wealth on the ground and then let the big boys, more often than not, put it into production. And uh, some very substantial gains are to be had in that sector, in my view, going forward. We've enjoyed some in the last couple of years as well, but I think uh, if Michael Oliver is right, we may be on to the next leg of a bull market in gold, and we'll hear from Michael in just a couple of minutes on that score and others. Uh, do like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, uh, chenpix.com is where to go for that, chenpix.com. Chen is actually in China right now with his family, um, a little vacation for the kids, and then he is on his way. Actually, I think he's perhaps returning now from Novo Resources Project in northwestern Australia. He is uh, an investor in Novo as well, and he uh, was there to see the project. So I look forward to hearing from Chen when he returns on what he saw from Novo Resources. We do want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. We also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically possible and viable. Um, they are sponsors for this week are Aron Resources, Bonterra Resources, Dynacor Gold Mines, Genesis Metals Corp., Klondike Gold, New Range Gold Corp., Northern Empire, and Novo, Novo Resources and Uranium Energy. Shortly before I went on the air, John Newell, he's a fund manager out of Vancouver, sent me a chart showing that gold had broken out above the downtrending S&P gold ratio, indicating that a new bull market in gold is underway. At least that's what he sees from his price uh, chart analysis. If this move is sustained, uh, I think all of those sponsors I just named should do very, very well. Their shareholders should be very happy in the months and uh, uh, months to come. Uh, if we did see a breakout in gold over the uh, to the S- in relative to the S and P 500, that uh, well, we did see that actually going back in 2016. We saw a breakout, and now we're seeing another one. Oh, Michael Oliver, as I said, will be with me in just a couple of minutes uh, to talk about uh, gold and some of the other very important markets that are starting to unfold right now. Uh, I've titled today's show "No Free Trade, Only Darwinian Game of Trade." Charles Hugh Smith, Jeff Dice, and as I said, Michael Oliver are with me today. No one can argue truthfully against the concept of free trade. In theory, at least, it allows countries that have lower cost of production to sell 
their products to countries that are inefficient in those same in, produ- in producing those same items. So, then consumers, whether corporate or individuals, certainly do benefit from true free trade. President Trump has received a huge amount of criticism for arguing that we do not have free trade, and all he wants is fair trade. Is there any truth to uh, Mr. Trump's arguments? Well, again, Charles Hugh Smith might agree because he has recently written the article that I just mentioned, There is no free trade, only Darwinian game of trade. In light of Trump's establishment threatening tariffs, we seek enlightenment from Charles on this issue. And uh, in the second half of today's show, uh, he will be with me. And uh, right before that, a chief, a former chief of staff uh, to Congressman Ron Paul, Jeff Dice, who's now the president of the Mises Institute, will join me to uh, give his insights uh, into uh, what he thinks about the tariffs that Mr. Trump has proposed and whether or not, in fact, they will be enacted. But enough for theory. Uh, what we really want is certainty, and I don't know of anyone who is more able to help me feel more certain about the markets and uh, where they are now and where they're headed then Michael Oliver, so I'm so pleased to uh, have him with me again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you here. Uh, wow, we're seeing some, uh, what seems to me, some major turning points in these major tech market tectonic plates that you've been talking about over the last couple of years. The NASDAQ, S&P, T-bonds. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, you see those, you see those in, in trouble, on the other hand, you see some markets like uh, gold and crude and, and commodities in general looking pretty strong, especially the agricultural commodities. But uh, what are your latest thoughts with regard to the NASDAQ uh, in particular? Because there seems to be some very interesting things taking place there. Well, it's been the narrow leadership of the entire developed markets of the world, uh, Japan, Europe, and the U.S. The NASDAQ 100 is front-end loaded and weighted with the famous FANG stocks. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where the narrow leadership is focused. So if that, when that index breaks its quarterly momentum, which it has not done yet, we had a very specific number this quarter, and it came down within about 10 points and on NASDAQ. That's nothing on a NASDAQ 100. It's a mm-hmm. six, 7,000-point index. Uh, breaking below it during that early February break, it traded below it, but it closed the week below it, and it took off again, upside. Uh, then came back down again, come back up again. It's very violent, thrashing around in the huge swings, 150-point swings, 200-point swings. And we think uh, what I'd like to see happen, if I could, you know, get my wish. Get out of your way. Nothing. I don't want anything more to happen between now and the close of the quarter, which is two days away. Uh, just close right here. I'd be very happy. Uh, quarterly momentum is a dynamic measurement of price where you, don't, you take price as a secondary and you oscillate it against a moving average, in this case a three-quarter moving average, and you get an oscillator, not a, not a price chart. And you see price in its percentage relationship above or below that average. Well, that's what we're looking at because there's a massive structure that's been developed on that particular chart, and it's been developed since 2017, so it's now a year and a quarter old. It's quite old, quite clear. All you basically have to do next quarter, which is to say, you know, any week starting in April, is close, uh, you know, around where you are now. I won't get real specific because the number will change a bit as of Thursday's close when I can calculate exactly, you know, where mm-hmm. the, the, the new three-quarter average is. But when you break that NASDAQ 100, I think the whole world is going to go take a next leg down. Most indices like the DAX index in Germany, the S&P 500, 
um, uh, the Euro stocks 50, which is a very blue chip overall European index, they've clearly broken down. And they're in the process of further decline. But the NASDAQ 100 is the, is the lone survivor. It's the leader. But I think once it breaks, it will become the leader again on the downside, meaning that when it starts to break, it's going to drop more than the S&P, more than the DAX, more than, you know, a lot of things. Uh, that's generally the history of markets is, you know, the excess leader on the upside becomes the excess leader on the downside once you've turned the tables. And I think we're in the process of turning the tables, period. Um, the uh, other markets are already turned. The bonds have already topped and are headed down. Right now, they're in a short-term counter-trend rally, which we expected. And it's largely due to the volatility in the stock market. People are saying, well, gee, I better get in the bond market to, you know, for safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It's a false notion. It won't work, <laughs> ultimately. But it will generate a short-term rally, and that's what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the gold market, I love what it's done. It has just very quietly tiptoed its way back up to a key level on price charts, if you look, which we look at secondarily, we, we became bullish in 2016 in February at the price of 11.40. And but price is built at base that such that if you can close a month out around 13.50 or higher, you'll break out above it. And even the price guys then will say, "Hey, this is a bottom completed. You know, we're a bull market." And we've been above there and below there the last few days, below there right now. Uh, but gold has quietly just moved up to that level. Nobody's noticed. Nobody's cared because there's so much volatility in the stock market mm-hmm. that nobody's noticing what's going on in gold, which is a refirming back up near the highs of the last two years. Uh, and we, we're confident that it's going to go through, whether it goes through on Thursday's close or not. Uh, it's it's going to break out of that price base. Uh, I happen to think that silver has some good odds of doing a big catch-up to gold. It's been much mm-hmm. more anemic than gold. Gold's gone back near its highs of the last two years, where silver sort of stayed in the middle of the last two-year range. Very quiet, very dormant, just like GDX. Mm-hmm. But I think there's some numbers on silver. We've issued them in reports, uh, two-layered numbers above the market, that if you can trigger them, you, you can shoot silver up to $25 pretty quickly. Um, and I think in that process, it would out, outpace gold on a percent basis. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a good likelihood. But uh, yeah. all, all the markets are now moving, and now the stocks, which are the laggard, typically they are, uh, appear to be ready to start their downside. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just uh, noticing now that uh, the NASDAQ has picked up a bit of steam to the downside, and, and so have the others. The Dow's down 202 points, NASDAQ down 163, 2.26%. So it is uh, certainly 70.57 on the NASDAQ. So, I mean, we're getting close to some areas that you think are very crucial. But let me understand, Michael, why you would rather not see anything well, on, on the, the downside right now. Well, the NASDAQ 100 in particular, yeah. not the composite, but the 100. Yeah. Uh, uh, I prefer when I get a breakout <laughs> on momentum, I prefer to get it even if it's defaulted, meaning the breakout occurs because the moving average changes in prices in the wrong relationship to the new moving average, and therefore it breaks the structure. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's what's about to happen with the NASDAQ, but I prefer that the break not be too deep. In other words, not find ourselves so far below the breakout point when you get into the second quarter that you have air above you, meaning you could rally the NASDAQ, uh, a couple of NASDAQ 100, a couple hundred points just to get up to the point of the breakout, 
on the momentum chart. I'd rather be around the point of the breakout on the momentum chart when you open the quarter so that there's no rally potential. You just go down. You know, yeah. you're, you just broke. Whereas when you open well below it, you've got room to rally and it won't mean anything. But you mm-hmm. still have that room to rally. I'd just soon go ahead and close so you don't have any rally potential. You mm-hmm. just, oops, gone. Yeah, you know? gone. And you Get drop, over uh, with. We think the NASDAQ 100, which is... 66, 6700 area lately, uh, could easily see 5900, 5800 in a heartbeat. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a 10% drop. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's just for starters. Um, so, anyway, it's. Uh, right. and, Michael, and it's very let, let me just ask too. real quickly about oil because we've seen some renewed strength in oil. How, how's that market looking to you right now? It's. Uh, I would look that we have run two things. One, our annual momentum suggests that your resistance for the year and likely target for the upside is 74 or 75, maybe up as high, high 70s. Let's call it mid to upper 70s. Well, -hmm. we've been in the 66, I think, has been our recent high. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a nice percent further gain, but it's not monumental. Mm-hmm. Oil's already had a huge move from a $26 low in early 2016. Right. So it, we view it as a, yeah, it's got more to go, but, uh, eh, you know, percent-wise, it's just not got the potency of, let's say, grains, or even mm-hmm. the potential of natural gas, which has a mm-hmm. uh, pending structure above it that could give it a 50% move. Um, mm-hmm. So while it is positive, it's not the place we think is the most money might be made in the commodity arena. Yeah. Well, I know you've been very bullish on the softs, and uh, you, that's certainly and, and the, the charts that you yeah. send along are, are, are suggesting that's where people should be. It's not the kind of markets that a lot of people invest in, but certainly people can do it now through ETFs and so forth. Yes, there's all made it harder of for individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of vehicles. Michael, thank you so much for being with us again, and uh, well, thanks, always, thanks. always a pleasure. Always very, very important to have you with us. Our, you have a growing fan base among our listeners. I can tell you that for sure. So thanks so much for being with us once again. Thank All you, right, Jay. folks. Well, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Jeff Deist, uh, he's the president of the Mises Institute. He'll be with us. Formerly, he had been the chief of staff for Ron Paul. We want to talk to him about trade and get his ideas on uh, the Trump tariffs. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Deist. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well-financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX, symbol NRG. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. 
The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Jeff Deist. Jeff, uh, most of you probably know Jeff Deist as a former uh, advisor to Ron Paul, Congressman Ron Paul. He was the uh, uh, a big help to Ron during his uh, campaign, and uh, he worked with Ron Paul a number of years. He was, uh, uh, well, he's one of Ron's closest advisors. He certainly well, he was the chief of staff, and uh, I've learned to know a couple of the people that worked with Ron and with Jeff down in the office uh, when Ron was uh, was a congressman and a candidate for president. Uh, Jeff also has a background uh, in taxes. He's a, an accountant, and he's a lawyer. He's actually a lawyer, a tax lawyer. And uh, now, though, he's uh, probably doing what I think is most worthwhile of his career, uh, working at the Mises Institute, which is an educational uh, institution to help people understand the merits of free market economics, and certainly something that uh, Americans shouldn't have to uh, shouldn't have to uh, really work too hard to understand. I thought we were supposed to be a free market capitalist system. Well, we're anything but that. And so, the need for the Mises Institute, Jeff. Thanks for joining me again today. Hello, Jay. It's great to talk to you. Always good to have you with me. Um, we we want to talk about trade today and tariffs. Uh, and we're going to be talking in the second half of today's show uh, about that. Uh, my guest is suggesting that there is no such thing as free trade. There's only game of trade, a Darwinian game of trade, he calls it. Uh, I, I certainly know, you know, as, as you as a free market advocate would, would, um, I would, I mean, I'd be surprised if you weren't very strongly in favor of free trade, free international trade, free trade domestically as well as wherever you go, right? But what what are your thoughts about the tariffs that Trump has recently suggested he's going to implement? It's an interesting question because I agree somewhat that trade is a game and there are winners and losers in games. And when we look at Trump's tariffs, I view them through a very different lens than most people, probably even most Americans, maybe even most conservative or libertarian or free market Americans in the Mm -hmm. sense that I'm totally opposed to tariffs. I see them not only as always just a tax, always Mm -hmm. just a tax on the buyer, but more importantly, as something that expands state power. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not that the uh, Japanese company that's importing the steel that I'm buying is getting more money from them. It's that my own government is getting more money from me yeah. and thus ex- expanding and consolidating its power. And it's also 
uh, playing a, an outsized role in deciding what I can and cannot do, what I can and cannot buy, or how much it costs. Now, that said, if somebody, even as a hardcore libertarian, if somebody said to me, we're going to completely replace income taxes with tariffs, which is basically the story of the United States up until uh, the corporate individual income tax was, was passed in 1913, you know, that wouldn't be a bad trade because I think the, the process of taxing income and what's that, what that has become with all of the compliance burden, with all of the nosiness, with all the thousands of pages of regulation that get into every aspect of our lives and, and our, our income and our work um, is, is far worse in many ways from a privacy and compliance standpoint. So I understand the arguments about unfair trade and unlevel playing field. I understand the arguments about dumping, et cetera. I, I wholeheartedly disagree with them. But more importantly, apart from the pure economics, Jay, my biggest concern is is that we're giving our own government, a bunch of bad people in Washington, D.C. who don't much like us, more power over us, which is certainly not what, what Trump campaigned on. Uh, and, and so I'm dead set against tariffs. And I do, unlike a lot of even conservative free trade advocates like a Lawrence Kudlow, I absolutely believe in unilateral tariff free trade. In other words, even if other countries slap 30% import duties on each and every American product, we should still accept their products without any tariffs whatsoever because, again, it's just a tax on the buyer and it's more power to FedGov, which is something I think is bad for everybody. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I guess that certainly is a consistent view of, of us libertarians, for sure. But, I mean, going back into history, as you point out, up until 1913, we had a very small government compared to what we have now. Now, and the, the government relied solely, pretty much solely on tariffs, I guess, up until then, right? And then it was after that, 1913, when they could start the income tax and they could start... Uh, of course, then when we uh, when we went off the gold standard in 1971, the international gold standard, that really freed up the government and the banking system to start creating money out of nothing, redistributing wealth of the power of the state. So what you're saying is if, if you could have a trade, a trade-off between uh, tariffs as a form of governments uh, gaining revenues uh, or the system we have now, you'd, you'd prefer that. Well, it's a bit more transparent. It's a bit more avoidable. It's far less onerous, but I got to tell you an interesting statistic. I was looking at some of the history of the 16th Amendment just a couple days ago, and the income tax, which now accounts for more than half of federal revenues between individuals and corporate, the income tax was very much sold as a soak the rich scheme. In fact, uh, for, for the first couple decades after, it really only applied to about 5% of the population. So you think how easy that would be to get passed. and. Mm -hmm. The income tax rate, the percentage rate, without all the complex deductions we have today, was only 1% yeah. on the first 20000 of income, which in today's terms would be something like $300,000, $400,000. And up, until the, up to the first 500000 of income, which would, would be many millions today, the rate was only 7%. So talk about incrementalism. My God, what a monster people created 100 years ago, and, and they did so thinking that they were just taxing some rich guy they didn't know. Look what they did to their own grandkids and, and what we all have to do now every year around April 15th. 
Yeah, it, it's, uh, I mean, the, the percentage of, of um, income that's taken by government now of GDP is just enormous, of course. Jeff, I want to ask you, to what extent, you know, you, you alluded to Trump's going back on his campaign promises. Uh, he campaigned to a great extent about, you know, a less... Uh, a less intrusive foreign policy even suggested that some of the things that we've done in the past, the wars of the past in Iraq and Libya and places like that, he really was hard on Hillary for some of those things. And then what's he do? But he brings in John Bolton, who to this day is still uh, sort of apologizing, not apologizing, saying it was the right thing to do. Iraq was good for America. What do you, how, what do you make of Trump's ruling back a lot of his, I mean, basically seeming to do a 180-degree turn on a lot of his campaign promises. And I wonder to what extent some of those, um, you know, military policies that he seems to be espousing now aren't related to foreign trade in some ways. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how they always go wrong on foreign policy. George W. Bush did very much the same thing, campaign on a kinder, gentler, Mm -hmm. non-interventionist foreign policy, and then turn. I I think part of it is simply that nobody can, no human, no single human can understand and know all the trouble in the world. No single human can know everything about climate change and economies and health care and Social Security, much less the the current geopolitics of Somalia or Syria or Iraq or any other place. So it really is absurd that presidents have as much power and as much say over life and death as they do. So what happens is they become malleable. They become an empty vessel for always ready and eager supplicants. Uh, you know, you might equivalent to a king's court to come whisper in their ear and flatter them. And I think W was easy to flatter. I think Donald Trump is easy to flatter. And so there's there's a, a natural human desire to uh, to be loved and want to be loved and want to be popular. So uh, unfortunately, with Trump, when he does foreign policy type things, is when he tends to get at least some grudging respect from the mainstream yeah. media when he talks tough on Korea or Syria mm-hmm. or anyone else. Now, Bolton Bolton is a, is a bridge too far. I mean, this guy is not even uh, in, in the realm of Trumpian campaign foreign policy. I mean, this guy is about as hawkish a, a human being as, as I believe or as I know exists in the U.S. foreign policy establishment. So it's uh, it, it's a devolution, and I don't think Trump would have been nominated if other things were going, excuse me, Bolton would have been nominated if other things were going better for Trump. I think this is a symptom of, of Trump sort of, sort of unraveling and trying to, mm-hmm. to regain some footing. Yeah, and, and the respect of those that will give him some on the grudgingly as you say. Uh, Jeff, with just a, a few minutes left here, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, um, there was, and I should mention to my, to my listeners that the Mises Institute has some excellent articles, uh, and I would you know, really strongly suggest that people go to Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. Uh, one of them that caught my eye was, was one written by Alistair McLeod, who will be our guest next week, China's Plan to End Dependency on American Trade. Um, and, and, you know, China is setting up, they've, they've increased their gold holdings to a great extent. They've set up the, the Shanghai uh, Futures Exchange for oil and, and for gold as well. And there's some thought that uh, of the uh, petrol yuan that may be in the making. Uh, China, I think it was just yesterday when they started to formally uh, 
put into practice the uh, the, the purchase of of oil for yuan uh, in the uh, Shanghai Exchange. Uh, and um, and of course they're doing all this infrastructure build out the one belt one road, uh, and Alistair is talking about how in that article how China is planning to end their dependency on American trade. Would I don't know if you've read that article or not, Jeff? But would you do you have any thoughts along those lines? And and do you think to to a certain extent one of the reasons we're hearing more uh, vitriol vitriolic or or sort of anger directed towards China because of what they're doing and their their growing independence and growing economic uh, strength? No question. I think it was a great article. I did read it after you sent it to me. Uh, but more importantly, uh, th- this is what a lot of people think is behind the saber rattling towards Iran, that a few mm-hmm. years ago, Iran had uh, threatened or decided to create an oil bourse priced in euro rather than mm-hmm. dollars. So if the, the Chinese economy, which is the second biggest in the world, um, it's small per capita, but in nominal uh, t- aggregate GDP, it's quite large. Uh, if the second largest economy in the world decided that it didn't need dollars to buy oil and that its trading partners didn't need dollars to buy oil from it, uh, including the Russians, perhaps the Brazilians, perhaps the Indians, uh, that would be an awful lot of dollars that that countries currently need that they wouldn't need. Uh, so all of these little things, maybe not any of them alone, but all of these little things become little shocks uh, that could upset the dollar. And so rather than looking maybe for some uh, uh, cataclysmic event, maybe we should just look for the next little uh, uh, feather on top uh, that topples the dollar over from being this this king world reserve currency uh, to something that's needed less and less. And once once the, the ball gets rolling downhill, I think U.S. Treasuries, which are, are, are you know spread out all over the world, are, are going to be in a very ugly sell position, which is going to require uh, either the raising of interest rates or some kind of nominal uh, uh, collapse, you know, some sort of, of nominal default. So it's it's a uh, it's very very interesting, and uh, I think I think the the Chinese won't continue to grow at the pace that they've grown in the last twenty years, but nonetheless we can't we can't we can hardly ignore it when mm-hmm. the second biggest economy on earth starts saying, "Nah, we don't need dollars anymore." Yeah, they're the second biggest economy, but it's my understanding, Jeff, they are now the number one importer of oil. The U.S. Uh, having become somewhat uh, independent or less dependent on foreign sources, having uh, its fracking and other sources that is developing here. So the Chinese are in a strong position uh, to go to the Saudis and others and say, you know, uh, we don't want to pay you in dollars anymore. We want to pay you in uh, in yuan. And by the way, if you don't like yuan, you can go over to the Shanghai Gold Exchange and hedge your yuan with gold. I, that seems to be what my understanding of what may be transpiring. But as you say, you know, Jeff, you you said something to me when I think when you were still working with, with Dr. Paul, and that was about how all of these agencies, these big bureaucracies in the government are so large that nobody can control even one of them, let alone the whole group of, of, of major bureaucracies. It seems to me that this is a uh, that the United States empire is an entity that's sort of out of control. There's nobody that can really sort of harness it or keep it from just going until it reaches its end. What are your thoughts? Well, it's entirely true. The, the, what 
Congress and the executive branch purport to control is far too vast for a few hundred people uh, in, in Washington to oversee. And so what happens is administrations come and go, members of Congress come and go, uh, the makeup of the Supreme Court comes and goes, but a bunch of lifers at the various administrative agencies, protected, by the way, by federal union laws, uh, make the real policy that we all have to live under. That's when, when I say the government, what mm-hmm. I really mean is the federal administrative agencies, not the politicians themselves. Is that what we mean by the deep state? It, it's not deep. It's right in front of us. It's ah. just boring and bureaucratic. There's nothing deep about it. It's in very plain sight. Huh. Well, I, I don't, uh, I mean, is that, would, would you extend that out then to some of the media, to the news media as well, that seems to play right into it and defend it? Well, they absolutely do, and uh, they want something to write about, and they want to sell newspapers, and they and they want to sell subscriptions. But look, you know, the people who want to govern us are not people like us, and they're not people who much like us. Yeah, uh, you know, they they are a, a, a separate part of America, and they're increasingly separating themselves. Uh, I, I guess by choice. Yeah, and they want us to be their servants, I guess. I guess uh, we're going to have to leave it go at that, Jeff. We are out of time for this segment, but I want to thank you very much for coming on with us. It's Mises.org. You can follow all that Jeff does there, the company, that what Mises does. Lots of great articles. And, Jeff, I think you're still doing a weekend uh, podcast, are you not? Or a- yes, every Friday afternoon, Mises Weekend Show. It's great great would- stuff. Who would be, do you know who your guest will be this week? We're having a great guest this week, a young and upcoming PhD professor who's going to talk about uh, what kinds of things we ought to consider are outside of economics. In other words, our relationships outside of economics is religious faith outside of economics, our charitable acts outside of economic analysis, or are all of these things still part and parcel of what we would call economic man? It's a great oh. question, especially since libertarians are often accused of, of viewing humans as these kind of soulless economic actors. I yeah. disagree, of course, but we'll, we'll explore yeah. it. Oh, that should be very interesting. Thanks for telling us about that, and thanks for being with us again, Jeff. All right. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Charles Hugh Smith will be with us to tell us uh, what his views are on foreign trade. He says there is no free trade. There's only Darwinian game of trade. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Charles Hugh Smith. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 
Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. Uh, I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me for a second time, I believe it's the second time, that Charles Hugh Smith is with me. Uh, Charles Hugh Smith is the author, proprietor of the popular blog of twominds.com, of twominds.com. He started that in 2005, and uh, he is also a contributor to peakprosperity.com. Uh, He is the author of numerous books, including Why Everything is Falling Apart, An Unconventional Guide to Investing in Troubled Times, uh, and another book that he's written more recently, Money and Work Unchained. Um, He has, uh, in that book, has addressed the idea of UBI, that's Universal Basic Income. So lots of uh, really interesting content. I I read Charles' stuff from time to time. It appears on Zero Edge. Uh, and uh, his reach is very far. I just had a nice compliment from Jeff Dice, who was uh, delighted to hear that Charles was coming on. He's, uh, Jeff reads Charles's work on a regular basis and, and loves it. So, uh, Charles, thanks for joining me again today. It's my pleasure, Jay. You, you cover the, uh, the really important topics, so I'm always delighted to be on your program. Yeah, we, we certainly the topics that are of interest to me. I'm accused sometimes of being too selfish. I get people on I like to talk to and, and people I'm interested in in what they have to say, but I think that's what a host should do. Uh, you don't want to bring people on that you're disinterested in. So uh, anyway, um, I found your, your article obviously very timely. Uh, there is no free trade. There is only the Darwinian game of trade. Now, in theory... Free international trade is good. It makes lots of sense because countries do what they have a comparative advantage in doing. They exchange those products for something uh, to another country that's not good at producing those. So in theory, one plus one equals more than two. It equals three or, or four or whatever. But in reality, your article points out that that isn't the way the world really works. You point out that the world is really a dog-eat-dog sort of a place so that international trade boils down to four Darwinian goals that has more to do with uh, what might makes might makes right than fairness, I would say. Could you uh, tell our listeners what those four Darwinian goals are? 
Sure. Uh, I think that uh, by Darwinian, of course, we mean um, survival of the fittest. Right? Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the, the context here of these four points is that when you're trying to gain an advantage in a trade, then you will, of course, say it's a free trade. Mm-hmm. When you're at a disadvantage, then you'll call it unfair trade. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that's where the political boundaries are. are um, it's, it all depends on which perspective you have. If, you're, if you are benefiting from that trade, then you call it free trade. And if you're not benefiting and you're at a disadvantage, then you call it unfair trade. So, Okay, uh, so, f- if we, so Charles, if I may, if we, so if we look at who is pushing free trade most, you can be pretty sure those are the countries that are benefiting most from so-called free trade. Exactly. And so uh, if we look back over history, as you say, in general, trade is very beneficial for the reasons you described, comparative advantage, Mm -hmm. and it allows every enterprise to uh, have a a broader market, right? Because now you can sell, you know, overseas. So, but stripped of these sort of abstractions, um, what I think uh, trade boils down to is number one, find foreign markets to absorb your excess production. Mm-hmm. So if you're making too many TVs, you got to find some place to dump them. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, extract foreign resources at low prices. So foreign trade in this case is you go buy a, a say a copper mine someplace in a third world country where mm-hmm. the production costs are cheap, and then you can guarantee a, a nice low supply, uh, low cost supply of copper. Number three is deny geopolitical rivals access to these resources. So if you can control, say, oil in a particular area, then you can deny that oil uh, to your geopolitical rivals. Mm-hmm. And um, number four, you want to open other people's markets to your uh, capital. In other words, so that, so that your citizens and corporations can go buy the resources um, uh, in other countries. Yeah, and in fact, um, you also recently wrote an article, I think, to do with, uh, with that whole issue of getting, uh, you know, the capital aspect, that last of the four. Could you talk to us a little bit more about that? Perhaps, um, I, I can't remember the name of the article that you wrote, but uh, there was an article that you actually talked about the, the capital, about about tra- capital fitting into the trade, uh, to the trade um, issue. Right, right. And um, so, Jay, the, the context here is um, the major uh, nations and, and, and trading blocks like the European Union, the US, Japan, and China, they have central banks that create basically free money, as, as you've discussed with many sure. of your guests. So, so corporations in, in these um, nations can borrow money at almost nothing, and then they can go into um, developing world countries, and they can outbid the local people for the, the key profitable resources. And so it's really unfair because they're not all the, – the cost of capital and the access to capital is, is completely skewed in favor of those nations with um, central banks creating money for nothing. Yeah. Well, the central banks, I would think um, the ones in particular that are aligned with the Anglo – what I call the Anglo-American Empire, the United States – uh, which has owns the world's reserve currency, at least at the moment it does. Uh, it, it's not as if, I mean, Venezuela has a central bank as well, but nobody's accepting Venezuelan currency these days, I think, right? So it must be that, the, that, that, that America and 
um, and you know countries aligned closely aligned with America, the European countries that have strong central banks. Uh, it, it's not just any central bank. So what you're saying is it would be mostly those countries that are aligned to the empire, perhaps that benefit most. Well, certainly those um, that have the largest economies and therefore th- the the world accepts their currencies, at least as as you said at this point. Mm-hmm. I, I'm looking at a, a map that I just came across this morning of um, average weighted tariff rates applied across all products. And I think this was the World Bank or the IMF or somebody, I can't remember the sources. Uh, yeah, World Bank. Uh, and the countries with the lowest tariffs, we're looking at actually Canada is a little bit lower, according to this, a little bit a little bit lower than the U.S. That the U.S., Australia, and Western Europe, and these are countries that are most closely aligned, I would argue, with the United States. And you go to countries like the ones that uh, agricultural comp- countries uh, or raw material countries like. Brazil, Argentina, uh, several African countries have the highest tariffs. I think maybe it's um, Bangladesh. India is pretty high. Their tariffs are pretty high. China and Russia, not as high as India, but also have pretty high tariffs. Um, you, you, I think in your article you talked a little bit about countries that produce raw materials. In fact, one of the one of the few ways that they may be able to protect themselves from being uh, devoured by some of the more powerful countries is by slapping on tariffs. Do you think that's maybe accounts for why some of those countries have higher tariffs? Yes, Jay, I think that's that's true. And and if we could look back at the history of the United States, when it was a developing country in the 18th uh, century, uh, the U.S. also had high tariffs to protect domestic industries from um, competitors who could just uh, beat the pants off of, of uh, domestic producers. But this is where we have to realize there's, there's more to value, you know, in our economy than simply the dollars and cents or the profits to be um, earned from exporting or importing. In other words, there's a national security interest really in having a domestic um, production economy, you know, that, that, and so if we just look at, at exports and imports and profits, we might think, oh, we're doing great because, you know, we're importing a lot of stuff at very low prices. But if we've lost our production base, we've actually weakened our nation, never mind how much profit got earned. Would you argue that that's what's happened in the United States? We certainly have lost the production of things that people I mean, we're, you know, the high tech, uh, of course, is what we excel in to a great extent. But thinking of the manufacturing base, is there some claim to Trump's uh, argument that if we lose our steel manufacturing, we don't have a country? You know, you can uh, you can argue with that. But in my view, you do want to support production of essentials in Mm -hmm. in your in your own nation and that. because you can't really, uh, if you look at history, you can't really count on imports flowing in at low prices forever. Things mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're creating a, a very fragile uh, economy if you're dependent on um, other nations uh, for your essentials. And um, you can't really put a price tag on that. So mm-hmm. w- whether it's steel or soybeans or wheat, or aircraft carriers, or aircraft. Uh, I mean, there's a, a computer chips. There's a lot of things that are considered 
uh, national security interests. And so I think we do need to look um, at the value above and beyond the, the profit margin. You know, you uh, commonly, as you, as you point out in your article, one of the big arguments for so-called free trade is that consumers benefit so much from that. I mean, that's always the push. Of course, there's a lot more, a lot of consumer votes out there. But you point out that it isn't the consumers that are, are not really doing all that well. There's some other interests that do a lot better. Could you comment on that? Yeah, Jay, I, I find this really interesting because um, when people say that, that, you know, um, free trade uh, really lowers our prices, they don't really put any numbers behind it. And so there was a, some people have attempted to put numbers there. And what they've come up with is the consumers have saved, say, between 100 billion and 200 billion over the last decade in, in lower prices for, by us having uh, an economy dependent on imports. But American corporations which offshored all of their production in order to you know increase their profits their profits have gone up from 400 billion a year before uh, the emergence of china as a trading uh, powerhouse to 2.3 trillion almost 2 trillion more a year in profits uh, much of which has been earned from offshoring production uh, to asia and so it seems to me the corporations have benefited. The consumers has has gotten crumbs. Mm-hmm. And Is this the part quality. Of, oh, pardon yeah. me. No, go ahead. Oh, and the quality of the goods that are being imported has declined dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, uh, and this is the what Trump called the hollowing out of, uh, or other people have talked about, the hollowing out of the middle class, the 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 industrial base of the United States. That's right. And I also wanted to mention, Jay, that, you know, other nations play a lot of tricks. And so when you Mm -hmm. talk about free trade or fair trade, they don't use tariffs. And and Japan is a past master of this. Um, And I'm not an expert on Japanese trade policy, but um, I am pretty familiar with the way they they do their conduct their business. And and, um, like many of the other Asian countries, they uh, completely protect their domestic industries, but they don't use tariffs. They use a bureaucratic thicket, more like a mm-hmm. moat. And so mm-hmm. um, what they'll do is, like, say, if you want to import, um, if, if the United States wants to export its um, electric guitars, is one of my examples, into Japan, well, the price is, is double what it is um, on the free market. So, well, how is that? There's no tariffs on electric guitars. Mm-hmm. Oh, but there's bureaucratic things. Well, we're not sure if your products are safe. So yeah. we, need a, we need five years through our bureaucracy to make sure <laughs> that your products are safe. I mean, there's... The, uh, these countries have so many ways to um, limit our um, imports from the U.S., and so it's just it, – it really is unfair. There um, – th- yeah, so there's, so there's a lot of other ways besides tariffs. You're saying that that's, that's not really the, the biggest issue is not, uh, is, is not the way that so, – so it has, has to do with capital flows. I, I, I want to get back to this issue of capital flows and – and the United States owning the world's reserve currency, do you think that's do, 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 is that an important issue in this whole game of trade? Oh, absolutely, Jay. And um, it's and one of the issues that people don't seem to talk about, which always surprises me, is how has China made sure its currency, the yuan or the renminbi, is stable? Well, it's it's locked it to the U.S. dollar, yeah. right? It's and so. 
um, if the U.S. dollar is stable, then China's currency is stable, and that's beneficial to them. They, that's a trade advantage to China because let's say if their currency was um, went way down or went way up, that would really seriously impact their exports in terms of the value and, and so on. So, you know, uh, that's one thing that people um, should focus on is the the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency. It's what the Chinese and other countries peg to and um, as a way of making sure that they have access to our markets. You, um, I want to get your ideas on this, the Shanghai or the Petro Yuan, which is something that um, that is being talked about in some circles, uh, not too much in the mainstream press, but certainly some of the things that I read and I suppose you read as well. That China has uh, imported and they produce, I think they're the number one gold producer in the world as well. They've built up their gold reserves, their official reserves, not actually Russia is supposed to have slightly more gold reserves now than China. But the One Belt, One Road project, uh, China is now starting to do a lot of things in uh, to to access uh, cheap raw materials in eastern uh, africa uh, and you know to just to set up the the infrastructure for trading uh, the the shanghai petroleum uh, futures exchange as well as the shanghai gold exchange now in theory at least or not more than in theory it's uh, yesterday i believe was the first day the 26th of march when china was going to start officially uh, buying oil for yuan and uh, the sellers of oil that might not want to hold yuan can hedge them on the gold exchange and the Shanghai gold exchange uh, with just a couple of minutes left here do you do you have any any ideas or any thoughts about that development and whether or not that may be a threat to the US dollar hegemony and if it is if that might have something major to say about the direction of trade in the future well, Jay, that's a great topic, and it's um, fairly complicated, but let's just take, take the beginning part, which is China has now become the largest importer of oil. It now it imports more oil than the U.S., and of course, that's because the U.S. industry, due to fracking, has started to pump a lot more oil, and so we don't need to import so much. So China has a huge interest in, in securing its 10 million barrels a day or whatever it's importing. And so it's a natural uh, development from their point of view to trade for their most essential import oil in their own currency. And of course, if we were in their shoes, we'd do the exact same thing. So yeah. I, I, I tend to think that I, I'm, I wish we would, uh, I wish that China would decouple, you know, uh, its currency from the U.S. dollar and then it mm -hmm. would be, um, it would trade as a free uh, floating currency, and we'd actually get to uh, know what its true value is. So yeah. I, I think we have to be a little cautious about the decline of the dollar because uh, other people have their national interest is to not be dependent on the dollar, and, and sure. we really can't begrudge them that. We sure. have to compete. No, absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a good way, a good place to leave it, Charles. We are out of time here. Uh, my engineer tells me we have less than a minute. Uh, I want to tell our listeners it's of two minds.com of two minds.com. I guess Charles, that's where people should go to follow what you're doing. And also you, um, you know, you don't charge people, but you do accept, uh, you know, gifts from people. I think my wife has uh, sent you a little bit of money and we, cause we really enjoy your work. Jeff Dice said he does. Uh, and I would just tell people to go to of two minds.com, 
check out Charles's uh, work. The, um, the just some very insightful articles. Uh, uh, how often do you publish, Charles? Uh, three times a week. Three times a week. There you go. Well, I know I see it uh, constantly. Zero Hedge picks up your your uh, your material, uh, and I should be going to of two minds more often myself. Uh, probably to gain some more wisdom for this show. Thank you so much for for being with us, Charles. It's uh, great to have you, and I hope we can have you back again sometime in the near future. Thank you, Jay. It's been my pleasure. All right, folks. Well, that is all the time for this week. Next week, uh, we'll be back. Uh, Alistair McLeod is going to be uh, with us. Uh, Also, Brian Groves of Genesis Metals. And uh, with a little luck, we'll also have Michael Oliver with us again. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Bonterra Resources, an advanced exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. Over the last 12 months, Bonterra has raised over $60 million and has attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource in the second half of 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000 meters of drilling, where the dimensions of the Gladiator deposit have been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under the symbol BONXF. Oren Resources is a technically driven, capital-efficient exploration company focused on delivering shareholder value through accretive project acquisition and discovery. The company's management team has a record of success in the discovery, advancement, and monetization of exploration assets. Oren's focus is on advancing its seven premier gold exploration projects located in Canada and Peru. Oren's shares trade on the TSX in Canada and the NYSE American in the U.S. under the stock symbol AUG. For more information, please visit orenresources.com.